Past Dark is intended for adults only. Listener discretion is advised. On August 1st, 1945, two extraordinary women would meet for the very first time in Omaha, Nebraska. Shirley Mason had a troubled past. Already diagnosed as a hysteric, she had long been plagued with a variety of unexplained illnesses and tics. Insomnia, colds, fainting, compulsions, lapses of memory and lost time. A deeply religious and private woman, she was also an accomplished artist who displayed a striking and original use of color in her work. She was intelligent and ambitious, curious, and very ill. On a trip to their family physician due to her mother's stomach cancer, Shirley's own condition had so alarmed the doctor that he had set up an appointment with his colleague, the esteemed psychiatrist and researcher Dr. Cornelia Wilbur, or Connie, in whose office she now sat, nervous and waiting. Connie was a recognized expert on hysteria, an illness that fascinated her and shaped her often questionable methods, which included not only electroconvulsive therapy, but massive and repeated injections of barbiturates to elicit memories of trauma, trauma that shaped the mind and, in Connie's opinion, created a variety of psychiatric disturbances. Dr. Wilbur was a formidable presence, a self-confessed pure scientist, who nonetheless would blithely ignore mountains of evidence, warning signs, and professional censure to create a mythos and an industry out of one woman's illness. Because Shirley Mason was Sybil, a woman with 16 separate personalities, made famous by the 1973 bestseller of the same name, as well as the televised feature starring Sally Field in 1976. Thousands of cases of multiple personality disorder, as it was then known, would emerge in its wake, spawning other accounts that were swallowed whole by a fascinated public. Only later would the truth about Sybil and her personalities come to light, and its implications leave us with a number of disturbing questions about psychiatric ethics, the limits of our understanding about mental illness, and perhaps most importantly, memory itself. This is a story of professional hubris, of greed and guile, of bad ideas, and the women trapped within them. This is the myth of Sybil, and it's past dark. Shirley Ardell Mason was born in January 1923 in the small town of Dodge Center, Minnesota. She was the only child of Walter and Maddie Mason, devout Seventh-day Adventists who were respected and prosperous, and lived in a house that Walter, an architect, had designed himself. The couple had wanted a large family, but Maddie had a succession of miscarriages that left her depressed and frail. 
they turned to the brand new Mayo Clinic, only 15 miles away, where a physician diagnosed Maddie with cardiac damage resulting from a bout with rheumatic fever as a child. She was also found to be anemic, a deficiency of red blood cells which can lead to fatigue, depression, and reproductive difficulties. Later, her daughter would be diagnosed with pernicious anemia, an inability to utilize B12, a clue to many of Shirley's later difficulties. In Maddie's case, she was treated and was able, at the age of 40, to bring a child to term successfully for the first and last time. Shirley was a small baby, only around six pounds, but she was healthy and lively. Maddie, on the other hand, fell into a deep depression for months, a depression so severe that her grandmother and hired nurses stepped in to take over until Maddie could handle her new baby on her own. Martha Alice had been a beautiful, slender, poetic teenager with a quick wit and a sharp mind. Her background was not at all religious, unlike Walter, who was a devout Seventh-day Adventist whose grandfather had been a fiery end-times preacher. The Seventh-day Adventists were a homegrown brand of Christianity descended from the Baptists, founded by a young teenage mystic named Ellen Harmon White, who had received a divine message of the second coming of Christ, and who prescribed a regimented lifestyle that forbade reading fiction and eating meat. After Shirley's birth, Maddie decided to convert to her husband's religion, and with the zeal of the newly converted, she sought to become the perfect godly wife and mother. But Maddie's own bouts of depression derailed her intentions. She joined the women's group, did missionary work, gave tirelessly of her time to the bereaved and less fortunate. But every so often, a cloud would descend, and she would sit for hours in the dark, staring into space. When she was at her best, she was loving and playful, almost childlike, as she sat on the floor with Shirley and her dolls, making up stories. And then suddenly, she would retreat into her own shadow, and would wander off to polish her china, as if in a trance. Maddie could also be cruel, and would sometimes wrongly accuse Shirley of random transgressions that she would deny to Maddie's great wrath. Shirley's father, on the other hand, was of a quieter sort, a gentle, creative man who respected his daughter's artistic inclinations and taught her how to use woodworking tools. While Maddie's own mental health certainly affected her treatment of Shirley, their former neighbors and townspeople spoke well of the Masons, who clearly doted on their only daughter, who early on began to display the illnesses that would plague her for much of her life. After the death of her grandmother in 1931, eight-year-old Shirley grew thinner and seemed distant and dazed in her classes. She was often congested, weak, and anxious. She grew fearful of running out of time, of disease, of her house burning down. Such fears are not at all uncommon in children, but Shirley's were immobilizing, ever-present, and sometimes bizarre. 
She grew terrified of the typeset print in newspapers and became so panicked at the shapes of the words themselves that she would almost black out. Her family took note and canceled their subscriptions. But oddly, Shirley took to collecting magazines from the neighbor's trash and hiding them in the back of her closet. After reading, she would always ritually wash her hands a certain number of times, believing she might have contracted diseases from their pages. Her hands seemed to be a central obsession, and she would often lose herself in inspecting them, studying them, or tracing designs in the air to calm herself. But it was her neurological symptoms that were most alarming. She often had little or no control of her own movements, and lurched rather than walked, often in the wrong direction. She had tingling sensations that radiated throughout her limbs and into one side of her face, impacting her vision. She slept endlessly, but nonetheless would awake exhausted. Her family physician diagnosed her with anemia, and Shirley was given a series of supplemental iron. By the summer after sixth grade, almost all of her symptoms had disappeared, and her fears retreated into the background, at least for the time being. But Walter Mason had lost it all when the banks and Dodge Center crashed in the Great Depression, wiping out his capital. He and his family were eventually forced to move from their home in the center of town to a run-down farm on the outskirts, hiding out in the chicken house when creditors tracked them down. It unmoored both Shirley and Maddie, who fell into her own trance for days, barely moving. Shirley became more reclusive, not only due to the inconvenience of distance, but due to her own shame at the decline in her family's fortunes. She retreated into a fantasy world and dreamed of becoming a teacher for the deaf or a doctor and fell back into her fears. Walter was determined to restore their standing, and by the end of high school, she was again showing improvement, even helping her father, who was busy building the town's first movie theater. She had also begun drawing and painting classes, and while it was true that the Masons' religion explicitly forbade it, they also understood that art made their daughter happy when nothing else seemed to. Shirley had always dreamed of higher education, and while her parents were not supportive of studying medicine due to Shirley's delicate constitution, they gladly paid her tuition and living expenses to attend Mankato Teachers College, 60 miles from Dodge Center. This was a whole new world for Shirley, whose hometown numbered only about 800 people, and she dove into a whirlwind of activity, editing the yearbook, writing for the school paper, and most surprising to Shirley, enjoying her new popularity and a burgeoning reputation as a genuinely talented artist. And for probably the first time, she met a number of women who were not obsessed with finding a husband, but far more interested in spreading their own wings and exploring life on their own terms. All of this was wonderful for Shirley, until it wasn't. Such a combination of events, even happy as they were, 
would have taxed most of us to some degree. For a sensitive woman like Shirley, it unseated her. By her second semester of her freshman year, she began again to be plagued by vague fears, sinus problems, fatigue, and insomnia. Her periods were difficult. She was once again diagnosed by the campus doctor with anemia, and after more injections, she rebounded, at least physically. The mental disturbances not only remained, but seemed to grow worse. She began to wander off, finding herself in places she didn't recognize. She acted increasingly out of character, pounding on a piano in her dormitory after hours, telling friends of weekend adventures where she drank in the local bars and solicited men. She also began having blackouts, which became so regular that her fellow classmates kept watch together to make sure that she didn't fall out of her desk. They would then gather her up and carry her to the campus doctor. There she would often be injected with luminol, a barbiturate used in the early 20th century as a sedative. She would be tentatively diagnosed as a hysteric, with the campus doctor referring her to the Mayo Clinic for a second opinion. Here it was concluded that her symptoms corresponded to some type of metabolic or blood disorder, but further tests would have to be done. Shirley, citing her religious beliefs, refused. The doctor would later write to the doctor on campus, agreeing with his initial diagnosis of hysteria. Hysteria today is largely discredited in the West as a medical condition, and genuine disorders such as epilepsy and premenstrual syndrome that were long misdiagnosed as hysteria have been safely disentangled from it. And for good reason. A glance at the history of hysteria leaves the reader with the impression that it was often used as a tool to both control and disregard. Hysterics were historically overwhelmingly female, and the faintest of rebellions, such as reading racy literature or refusing to marry a man chosen by her parents, could earn a woman the brand of hysteric. Throughout history, it was often a catch-all for any female complaint, and was sometimes written off entirely as demonic possession. A natural byproduct of this lack of discernment and diagnosing is the fact that many genuine illnesses were being mislabeled, and thus mishandled. The stated symptoms of hysteria, including insomnia, anxiety, amnesia, and convulsive fits, also align with a number of other mental illnesses such as depression and medical conditions such as Parkinson's disease. Hysteria today is considered largely an archaic oversimplification. It was finally removed from the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, in 1980. But in Shirley's time, hysteria was still very real, and it was a disorder that enthralled a young doctor by the name of Cornelia Wilbur. Little of Cornelia's childhood is known. What we do know comes from an interview Dr. Wilbur gave shortly before her death in 1991, in which she speaks proudly of growing up in a family of, quote, pure scientists. Her father was a well-regarded inventor and chemist, Arthur Warner, 
one of America's most respected scientists in the early 20th century and founder of Gulf Oil. Despite their riches, her family was not at all supportive of her own scientific aspirations and refused to pay for her college education. She nevertheless went on to earn a degree in chemistry from the University of Michigan, marrying a man two years older than she, mostly, she says, because he paid her tuition. After school, she became bored by chemistry and decided to continue her education in psychiatry. She takes a job at a hospital for the mentally ill in Omaha, Nebraska, where she first becomes fascinated with hysterics. In comparison with many other extreme cases of mental illness, hysterics were manageable, with many of their symptoms seeming almost theatrical. They responded profoundly to suggestion and were prime subjects for hypnosis. In fact, they often seemed to be caught in a constant state of trance. Many had gone blind or were paralyzed, despite tests showing no organic medical issue. Here was something that so-called pure science had yet to explain, a mystery she could sink her teeth into. She got the chance to treat her first hysteric in her junior year, after being recommended for a summer job at Kalamazoo State Hospital by Dr. Robert Dieterle, a psychoanalyst who was also fascinated by hysteria. Cornelia's cure seemed to be comprised of long walks with the patient, a young girl whose problems were said to center on an Oedipus complex. Perhaps Dr. Wilbur had merely listened to the young girl, the talking cure of psychoanalysis. Whatever the method, the young girl was pronounced cured and, supposedly, never suffered a relapse. The experience made Cornelia feel, she said later, like a magician, and she grew in confidence that the study and treatment of hysteria was her destiny. And perhaps had her methods remained so non-intrusive, Dr. Cornelia Wilbur's career would never have been later darkened by controversy. But it is at this stage that she becomes deeply involved with the now largely discredited practice of shock treatment. Hearing the term today, most of us conjure up scenes from What Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and its vivid portrayal of electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. But the earliest methods of shock treatment were chemical and involved medically induced insulin coma. After awakening, many patients were pronounced cured of their mental illness, and by the end of the 1930s, it was the most popular treatment in American mental hospitals. These cures were rarely followed up on, and double-blind studies rarely done. It also killed a number of patients. Around this time, a Hungarian psychiatrist, Dr. Ladislas von Meduna, begins using another chemical method of shock, using a poison related to camphor called metrazole. Instead of coma, it brought convulsions so extreme 
that some patients experienced broken bones or fractured spines. Additionally, many patients also reported a pervasive feeling of dread between the time of the injection and the ensuing convulsions. While lasting only seconds, this dread was so all-consuming that it ensured that many would not undergo another treatment willingly, leading to patients fleeing from, and sometimes fighting, their doctors. Due to its purported ability to cure psychotics, who were often considered hopeless cases, the practice spread like wildfire, and by 1938 it had reached the University of Michigan Psychopathic Hospital, where Dr. Wilbur was now a resident, and where patients as young as 14 were being given metrazole injections. Only two years later, ECT would be imported from Italy, where it had been invented in 1938. Despite its later connotations, ECT didn't frighten the patients as had metrazole with its doom and broken spines, and like previous methods of shock, it sometimes worked. But many doctors would grow suspicious of ECT after brain damage and permanent memory loss occurred in a number of patients, and Dr. Dieterle, Cornelia's mentor, was one of these and he resigned from his post and set up private practice on his farm near Ann Arbor. Shortly after, he encounters a patient with multiple personality disorder and discusses the case at length with Dr. Wilbur. She was transfixed, but she was also deep in her own studies. By 1941, Dr. Wilbur had moved on to the Pontiac Asylum in Michigan, a public hospital that held over 2,000 very ill and very poor patients. The only therapy offered was massive doses of sedatives, which kept them docile and manageable. Assaults were common, and one patient was beaten to death by a member of staff. Malnutrition and neglect were rife. But the sheer numbers of patients and the lack of oversight meant that Dr. Wilbur could experiment freely and soon she was injecting and shocking patients in ways she had never done before, writing up her discoveries in hopes of eventual publication. Her experiments centered on barbiturates, whose popularity in the form of pentothal or truth serum in the 20s and 30s was borne out by their use in interrogations in the military and by the police. Psychiatrists had also used them for years to calm agitated psychotics, and often to induce coma through chemical shock treatment. In its guise as truth serum, Dr. Wilbur felt that pentothal's use in a clinical setting could unlock traumatic memories buried under mental disturbance, trauma that could be both the source of suffering and its salvation. Once the trauma was brought out into the open, it could be integrated into the whole personality, and its influence on behavior lessened through psychoanalysis. This link between trauma and mental illness is today supported by the evidence, but it was still being debated throughout the 19th and 20th century. Freud laid the blame on unfulfilled Oedipal desires, and the popularity of Freud and his ideas in psychiatric circles moved trauma as a cause to the back burner. But Dr. Wilbur and many others supported the idea, and now, 
she was set on a path to test those theories among asylum patients. And then, in 1942, at a leading research institute in Omaha. And here she would become involved with yet another controversial psychiatric practice that is perhaps the most barbaric and certainly most invasive procedure in the history of 20th century medicine, the lobotomy. With over half a million patients housed in public institutions in mid-century America, expedient psychiatric cures were constantly sought to quickly return the mentally ill to some semblance of normal life. This urgency was complicated by lack of sufficient funding for public hospitals, most of whom would close by the 1990s in a decades-long effort known as deinstitutionalization, where smaller, community-based clinics were to replace the large public mental hospitals of the past, an idea widely considered today to be a failure. The cost of long-term treatment versus the promise offered by a brief medical procedure lasting as little as 10 minutes meant that lobotomies quickly found favor, especially in underfunded, understaffed public institutions. But even early on, it was clear that lobotomies could lead to, at the very least, unpredictable results. Some patients became grossly obese within weeks. Some lost control of their bowels or bladders permanently. And some lost their very humanity, becoming robotic and listless. Despite this, Cornelia's new boss, Dr. Abram Bennett, began performing the procedure, and she assisted in some of the first few hundred lobotomies performed in the United States. But Dr. Wilbur's favorite methods, her old reliable, always involved barbiturates. In her clinical work, she was encountering a staggering number of traumatized former soldiers suffering from what we know today as PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as shell shock, battle fatigue, or gross stress reaction. In 1952, the American Psychiatric Association, or APA, included the latter in its first diagnostic and statistical manual. Having already produced some positive effects using pentothal on hysterics, Dr. Wilbur began using the technique with these soldiers, having them relive painful memories while in a twilight sleep, which allowed the inner narrative to emerge for analysis while the patient remained in a calm, yet highly suggestible state. This was narcosynthesis, and it was wildly popular and widely used by psychiatrists all over the country, so much so that in 1944 her boss, Dr. Bennett, produced a short training film starring Dr. Wilbur, in which she demonstrates her methods and their results. It is not an easy viewing. In silent black and white, Dr. Wilbur injects a variety of patients with massive doses of barbiturates, with the expected effects. It feels like voyeurism, despite the film's intention as a training film for medical personnel. There is no record of these particular patients, and whether or not these injections were successful in the long term, though it is heavily implied. And there were grave concerns about the safety of barbiturates even then. They were already known to be addictive and easy to overdose, 
and while their hypnotic effects lent themselves to revelation and memory recall, how true were these unearthed memories? Military psychiatrists were most likely the first to notice disparities, as it was easy to check a soldier's record to confirm their presence during a particular battle or validate a remembered injury. With one's entire military history available on record, false claims were quickly laid bare, and it was soon apparent that little of what was being captured in these twilight sleep sessions corresponded with reality. Civilian psychiatrists, on the other hand, would be much slower to realize this, and, as we will see, some never would. With the war at its end, and with so many men resuming their former posts and careers, Dr. Wilbur's own career would gradually become less prestigious. Women had taken on more non-traditional jobs than at any time in history, with the understanding that, when the men came home, the women would vacate. To Dr. Wilbur, this was a crushing, though not unexpected, blow. She began to feel that a massive change was in order, something glorious, something worthy of all of her efforts and research, which had ground to a halt, due largely, she felt, to her gender. It was in this mood that she first meets Shirley Mason in August of 1945. Shirley, at this time, was herself once again at an impasse. Having dropped out of school and moved to Nebraska with her parents, her behavior had grown, once more, bizarre. She would disappear on family trips and have no memory upon being found. She suffered manic states and fell into an exhausted sleep. She tried college again and, once again, dropped out. She once more took up her compulsive hand inspections and in tracing the air. Her condition was noted with alarm by her mother's doctor, who was treating Maddie for stomach cancer. That he would recommend her to Cornelia Wilbur, who was by now considered an expert on hysterics, is interesting, given Shirley's past anemia. Perhaps the doctor, new to the family, was unaware of her medical history. Whatever the case, Shirley and Dr. Wilbur would go on to have five initial sessions together, and, oddly enough, no more for years. This initial meeting was a spark. Both would be charmed, with Cornelia remembering years later that there was something about her. And for Shirley, these early sessions served her well. Over just a few months of therapy... Cornelia saw in Shirley a woman who yearned for more beyond the thin horizon offered her by the expectations of her parents, a woman who was devoted to art and study. She encouraged Shirley to look more critically at her parents, inevitable in therapy considering the sometimes suffocating influence they often had on her. Whether as a consequence of Shirley's fragility or their own somber beliefs, she had grown to resent them and Cornelia may have emphasized this, if only to encourage Shirley's independence. She recommended a number of books to Shirley, among them Dissociation of Personality, written by Morton Prince in 1905, about a woman named Christine Bouchon, who suffered from multiple personality disorder. The use of hypnosis in this case as an aid to therapy bothered Shirley, 
as it was forbidden by her faith. And it was for the same reason that she refused any of the doctor's special injections, settling for a prescription for sleeping pills, should she need them. In a few months, Shirley's symptoms had become manageable, and Dr. Wilbur broke the news that she would be leaving the state. Shirley would initially be devastated at the loss, but would in time move past it with the help of her studies and her own aspirations. Cornelia had her own problems to attend to, among them divorcing her husband and finally leaving Nebraska for New York City in private practice. They would not meet again for nine years. Cornelia continued her work with traumatized soldiers at Halloran Hospital on Long Island, as well as a number of outpatient clinics. But she was growing weary of public hospitals. She was attracted to psychoanalysis, which often necessitated long-term care, an idea too expensive to implement in anything but private practice. And the returns were considerable. In the early 50s, the going rate in New York City for one treatment hour was about $50, about $600 in today's money. This is not to put down Cornelia's interest in psychoanalysis as merely monetary. It must have been a fascinating prospect to have the opportunity to work one-on-one with interested patients, those who had elected to be there of their own volition. And if they paid handsomely for the privilege, well, that was okay too. Dr. Wilbur would be by now in her early 40s with a solid career in psychiatry behind her. She began her training in psychoanalysis at the New York Medical College and opened up her private practice upon earning her credentials. She also marries one of her earliest patients, Frederick Keith Brown, a corporate lawyer, in 1953, and they move into a spacious, Tony apartment on Park Avenue, which also housed an office for her practice. And here, in October 1954, Shirley came back into her life, and this time, for good. Shirley was now enrolled as a graduate student at the Teachers College at Columbia University, but she was losing interest rapidly, and anxiety was starting to plague her again after years of relative normalcy. She had received no more therapy after Dr. Wilbur, but had achieved a stability that was impressive. Her parents had relaxed many of their former attitudes, and fiction was now no longer so forbidden. Her father had even bought her a subscription to the Book of the Month Club. She taught part-time, and had begun to nurse her own aspirations to become a psychotherapist. She had finally earned a bachelor's degree in teaching, and became an art therapist at Porter Hospital in Colorado. Maddie had died in 1948, and Walter had remarried and moved to Detroit with other Adventists to do missionary work. Shirley had followed, but had chosen to accept a teacher's job near Detroit and to live alone. She taught 400 rambunctious grade schoolers and was well-liked among her colleagues. And if she still resorted in private to the odd hand gestures, the daydreaming, it was hardly incapacitating. Another of her greatest difficulties had been her periods, which were always debilitating. This was solved just before she departed to study in New York City, when Shirley flew to California to visit at Adventist Hospital, 
where a family friend was a physician. They discovered there that one of her ovaries was enlarged and malfunctioning, and she was also suffering from endometriosis, a common female condition causing pain and bleeding. The ovary was removed and her endometriosis treated, which put an end for a time to the nearly lifelong pelvic pain and excessive menstrual periods. Since Shirley had previously been anemic, it should have been easy to draw some conclusions on other physical issues that might have arisen from these problems, especially considering that other lifelong maladies, such as sinus pain and weight loss, evaporated after this surgery. It should be underlined here, before the real madness starts, that Shirley Mason was by no means at her most vulnerable or her most ill. On the contrary, she was a graduate student who had already taught many others. She lived alone, and, while well, yes, she was lonely, nervous, and sometimes had trouble sleeping, these were garden-variety maladies that were in no way equal to her past difficulties. She had overcame much. These few issues remaining were probably as treatable as her cramps. And remembering the positive outcome of her first round of therapy with Dr. Wilbur, she must have felt it providential to find that her former therapist was now also in New York City, in private practice. Stark is written and produced by Carmen Park. Original music by Skillpack.